This is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, Brett Easton Ellis' writing as we delve back into American Psycho. I have tried to record this intro several times, and I have stopped myself, restarted. I even restarted my computer because of an audio issue, but here we are, and I... I'm having a little bit of difficulty on a personal level with this because I guess I should just delve into the book and not go into it. But I am doing pretty well. I can honestly say that. I know it doesn't sound like it, but I am actually better than I have been in a little while. But at the same time, I have to be careful about what I say on the podcast because of the audience. So, my wife is in the other room taking a bath, so we may hear inklings of her on her cell phone, and I apologize for that. We may also hear her empty the bathtub at some point, and I'll try to cut that out. But we're going to go ahead and get into the book. So, are you ready for this? All right, so... I discussed the possibility of getting into the music chapters where Patrick Bateman talks about Whitney Houston, Huey Lewis and the News and Genesis. And I figure, why wait? Because the second chapter is largely a list of things in Patrick Bateman's life, including his morning routine. And I don't know that I should read that as Tempting as it is to do my Patrick Bateman impression and read all these famous lines, it's been done. There's a movie, and we're here for analysis more so than just reading, right? I mean, this isn't a teleplay. Uh, A teleplay would be a TV show, Patrick. Uh, A radio play. So, we're going to get into the book right now. We begin with the chapter on Genesis. I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album, Duke. Before that, I didn't really understand any of their work, though on their last album of the 70s, the concept laden, and then there were three, a reference to a band member, Peter Gabriel, who left the group to start a lame solo career. I did enjoy the lovely Follow You, Follow Me. Otherwise, all the albums before Duke seemed too artsy, too intellectual. It was Duke, Atlantic 1980, where Phil Collins' presence became more apparent, and the music got more modern. The drum machine became more prevalent, and the lyrics started getting less mystical and more specific, maybe because of Peter Gabriel's departure. And complex, ambiguous studies of loss became instead smashing first-rate pop songs that I gratefully embraced. The songs themselves seemed arranged more around Collins drumming than Mike Rutherford's bass lines or Tony Banks' keyboard riffs. 
A classic example of this is Misunderstanding, which not only was the group's first big hit of the 80s, but also seemed to set the tone for the rest of their albums as the decade progressed. The other standout on Duke is Turn It On Again, which is about the negative effects of television. On the other hand, Heath Hayes is a song I don't understand, while Please Don't Ask is a touching love song written to a separated wife who regains custody of the couple's child. Has the negative aspect of divorce ever been rendered in more intimate terms by a rock and roll group? I don't think so. Duke's Travels and Duke's Inn might mean something, but since the lyrics aren't printed, it's hard to tell what Collins is singing about. Though there is complex, gorgeous piano work by Tony Banks on the latter track. The only bummer about Duke is Alone Tonight, which is too reminiscent of Tonight, Tonight, Tonight from the group's later masterpiece, Invisible Touch, and the only example really of where Collins has plagiarized himself. All right, let me put on my Burt's Bees real quick before I get into this because there's a lot to unpack here. And this is just the first page. Now, first of all, if you're a Genesis fan and you read this, you probably cringe because there's a lot that's inaccurate in this chapter so far. First, Peter Gabriel left before they recorded the album Trick of the Tail. Now, Phil Collins took over as the lead singer after they auditioned a lot of other singers. Now, they wrote all the songs in a certain vocal range, okay? And they did actually hire a singer, and I cannot remember his name, but he didn't end up on the album because he couldn't sing in that range. And Phil Collins took over because, for one thing, he could actually sound a little bit like Peter Gabriel. The reason why And Then There Were Three is called And Then There Were Three is because Steve Hackett left the band. He was the group's guitar player. And Patrick notes that Mike Rutherford plays bass which is correct, but he also ended up playing guitar on all of the 80s albums. And on tour, they actually used Phil Collins' touring guitar player who played on his albums. But A Trick of the Tale was a really good album. Wind and Ruthering is a really good album. And then There Were Three is a really good album. And then there's Duke. The thing about Duke is that it is an album that kind of confounds fans on some level. Now, most Genesis fans like that album. It is a great album. It is slightly a concept album, but also not. There's a loose storyline within the first seven tracks or so, but he notes Misunderstanding, which is a great song, and he also notes Turn It On Again, which is a great song. Both of them were hits. Misunderstanding is a great stalker song, and it's got that cool riff with the Ceylon Sailor drums in the background. And then you have Turn It On Again, which has one of the best vocals from Phil Collins ever. And that is also a song about obsession. He does not seem to like Alone Tonight, but I like that song plenty. Please Don't Ask is indeed about Phil Collins' wife. It is also one of two songs that is solely written by Collins on that album, so you would think that Patrick Bateman would like it more. He also notes that Duke's Travels and Duke's End don't have lyrics printed for them. Duke's End is an instrumental. Uh, Duke's Travels is also an instrumental, but there is a uh, refrain from uh, Behind the Lines, I believe, 
that is on that that song. So it's a great album from start to finish. It's interesting that Patrick Bateman would not like the 70s stuff, but he would like Duke. And it's obvious that he only really likes the hits, the two hits, Misunderstanding and Turn It On Again. But he doesn't really grasp the full scope of what Genesis is. But he's he has a whole chapter about them. It's more about Phil Collins if you really think about it because Phil Collins was the hit maker of the 80s. He defined the 80s drum sound. But he doesn't really go into a lot of detail about Phil Collins' solo work just yet. For such a big Genesis fan, Patrick is quick to dismiss a lot of their songs. And when he gets to the like fifth paragraph of this chapter, he mixes up Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks. He refers to them as Mike Banks and Tom Rutherford, which is uh, infuriating if you're a Genesis fan. Illegal Alien is the most explicitly political song the group has yet recorded in their funniest. The subject is supposed to be sad, a wetback trying to get across the border into the United States. But the details are highly comical. The bottle of tequila the Mexican holds, the new pair of shoes he's wearing, probably stolen, and it all seems totally accurate. So, it's interesting that someone would read this and not think that Patrick Bateman is a racist just because he scolds other people for being racist. This is Donald Trump-style racism. Phil sings it in a brash, whiny, pseudo-Mexican voice that makes it even funnier. And the rhyme of fun with Legal Alien is inspired. Yeah. I like that song. I'm not sure if I should admit liking Legal Alien because a lot of people think that it's quite offensive. But I like songs that are way more offensive than that. Invisible Touch is the group's undisputed masterpiece. It's an epic mediation on intangibility. At the same time, it deepens and enriches the meaning of the preceding three albums. It has a resonance that keeps coming back at the listener, and the music is so beautiful that it's almost impossible to shake off because every song makes some connection about the unknown or the spaces between people, such as Invisible Touch, the title track. Questioning authoritative control, whether by domineering lovers or by the government, Land of Confusion. Or the meaningless repetition of Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. All at all, it ranks as the finest rock and roll achievements of the decade and the mastermind behind this album, along, of course, with the brilliant ensemble of Banks, Collins, and Rutherford, is Hugh Pagman, who has never found as clear and crisp a modern sound as this. You can practically hear every nuance of every instrument. If you like Genesis and you're not a big fan of the slicker sound, I get it. But I will say that Invisible Touch is a incredible album, really. I tried to write a whole novel based around this loose plot line I was seeing in my head from listening to it over and over again. That ended up being the Charles Price novella, which is available in the Kindle version of Price of the Trinity for 99 cents on Amazon. But my advertisement aside, his analysis of the album is not totally wrong, but at the same time, 
there is a reaction from the band to Phil Collins' solo work, and they did want to get back to their progressive roots because Abacab and the self-titled album from 1983, they're both more pop-oriented in a sense, even though you have Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea. But Domino is really what sets it apart. That's a great song. And the final track, which the name escapes me. But yeah, and then we have Phil Collins' solo efforts seem to be more commercial and therefore more satisfying in a narrower way, especially No Dragon Required. And songs like In the Air Tonight and Against All Odds. Take Me Home and Susudio, a great, great song, a personal favorite. And his remake of You Can't Hurry Love, which I'm not alone in thinking is better than the Supreme's original. But I also think that Phil Collins' solo work is better within the confines of the group than as a solo artist. I misread that line. And I stress the word artist. In fact, it applies to all three of the guys because Genesis is still the best, most exciting band to come out of England in the 1980s. I do recommend, even if you're just vaguely interested in Phil Collins or Genesis, if you're a fan of the book, to listen to the first three Phil Collins albums. Now, Patrick Bateman is sort of wrong in dismissing Peter Gabriel's solo work because I get that it's not in the same vein as Phil Collins, but you have the album So, which was a big deal back in the 80s, and you would think that as someone who is interested in analyzing things that are considered popular music that Patrick Bateman would take interest in that album. But I also recommend listening to the first few Peter Gabriel albums, especially so. That's a great album. But after I read this, I didn't like Phil Collins and I didn't like Genesis. I got more into them in, in college, which is really the best time to get into them. But if you don't, if you read this book and you don't know who Phil Collins is, I, I don't know what to tell you. you. You can't really get what the whole decade was about if you don't know who Phil Collins is. And we have the, the Whitney Houston chapter. Now, I have a different relationship with Whitney Houston because I grew up listening to her through my mother. But I've, I cannot confirm or deny anything in this chapter the way that I did with the Genesis chapter. So... Uh, just bear with me if Patrick says anything wrong, which I'm sure he will. Whitney Houston burst onto the music scene in 1985 with her self-titled LP, which had four number one singles on it, including The Greatest Love of All, You Give Good Love, Saving All My Love for You. Plus, it won a Grammy Award for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Female and two American Music Awards one for Best Rhythm and Blues Single, and another for Best Rhythm and Blues Video. She was also cited as Best New Artist of the Year by Billboard and by Rolling Stone magazine. With all the hype, one might expect the album to be anticlimactic, lackluster affair. But the surprise is that Whitney Houston is one of the warmest, most complex, and altogether satisfying rhythm and blues records of the decade. And Whitney herself has a voice that defies belief. From the elegant, beautiful photo of her on the cover, and its fairly sexy counterpart on the back, 
One knows that this isn't going to be a blandly professional affair. The record is smooth, but intense. And Whitney's voice leaps across so many boundaries and is so versatile that it's hard to take in the album on a first listening. But you won't want to. You'll want to savor it over many. It opens with You Give Good Love and Thinking About You, both produced and arranged by Kashif. And they emanate warm, lush jazz arrangements, but with a contemporary synthesized beat. And though they're both really good songs, the album doesn't really get kicking until Someone For Me, which was produced by Jermaine Jackson, where Whitney sings longingly against a jazz disco background. And the difference between her longing and the sprightliness of the song is very moving. The ballad, Saving All My Love For You, is the sexiest, most romantic song on the record. It also has a killer saxophone solo by Tom Scott, and one can hear the influences of 60s girl group pop in it. But the 60s girl groups never were never this emotional or sexy as this song is. Nobody Loves Me Like You Do is a glorious duet with Jermaine Jackson, and just one example of how sophisticated lyrically this album is. The last thing it suffers from is a paucity of decent lyrics, which is what usually happens when a singer doesn't write her own material and has to have her producer choose it. But Whitney and company have picked well here. Okay, pausing here because this is a lot to digest. I am ignorant about most of this. I know a lot of the songs, but... There's this sense that when you read these music chapters that Patrick Bateman knows he's in a book. He's talking to you. He's trying to impress the audience. He's not talking to to prostitutes in another man's apartment, for example. He's talking to the audience. And he seems to be aware that he's a fictional character, but the world... And this book revolves around him and his taste. And you might argue that that influences the fact that he decides to kill people because perhaps he feels that there's no real repercussion. And later on in the book Lunar Park, we see that even in this fictional universe where Brett Easton Ellis is a real person, Patrick Bateman exists. And Brett Easton Ellis has to kill him. But, back to Whitney, I only know that Whitney Houston, before she was this big solo artist, actually tried acting and she auditioned to be on The Cosby Show and she was not given a part. I think she tried to get Lisa Bonet's part, Denise. I could be mistaken. I guess I kind of shot myself in the foot by not listening to the first two or three Whitney Houston albums before recording this. I didn't really think to, just because I'd grown up with their, their with her music, rather. I can only speculate that Patrick Bateman likes Whitney Houston so much because he's secretly a softie. And he's he's even made fun of in the movie by one of the prostitutes in the apartment when he starts talking about Whitney Houston. I mean, there's also this notion that maybe Patrick Bateman is a closet homosexual. 
but the straight men can can like Whitney Houston too. There's no shame in that. But yeah, I I can only surmise that Bradyson Ellis threw that in as kind of a jab at his masculinity because I'm sure that Brady Stanellis actually likes Whitney Houston too. Now, let's move on to Huey Lewis in the news, shall we? I guess I should start this out by asking, do you like Huey Lewis in the news? Huey Lewis in the news burst out of San Francisco onto the national music scene at the beginning of the decade with their self-titled pop rock album by Crystalis, though... They really didn't come under their own, commercially or artistically, until their 1983 smash, Sports. Though their roots were visible, blues, Memphis soul, country, on Huey Lewis and the News, they seemed a little too willing to cash in on the late 70s, early 80s taste for New Wave. And the album, though it is a smashing debut, seems a little too stark, too punk. Examples of this being the drumming on the first single, Some of My Lies Are True, and the fake hand claps on don't make me do it, as well as the organ on taking a walk. Even though it was a little bit strained, their peppy boy wants girl lyrics and the energy in which Lewis as the lead singer instilled all the songs were refreshing. Having a lead guitar player like Chris Hayes, who also shares vocals, doesn't hurt either. Hayes' solos are as original and unrehearsed as in any rock. Yet the keyboardist, Sean Hopper, seemed too intent on playing the organ a little too mechanically, and Bill Gibson's drumming was too muted to have much impact. The songwriting also doesn't mature until much later, though many of the catchy songs had hints of longing and regret and dread. Okay, a lot of people aren't aware of the history of Huey Lewis in the news, and I can give you just a little bit. So, Huey Lewis was in a band called Clover, I believe, before he was in the news. And they played on the first Elvis Costello album. And Huey Lewis set that out because he was the harmonica player. He was a harmonica player for uh, Phil Lynott of Thin Lizzy as well. He was good friends with him. So... He was established in a sense, but not really out there yet. And Huey Lewis and the News is essentially a bar band, you know. They created a sound unlike any other band in the 80s. And a lot of bands in the 80s ended up copying their production style. Which, if you're not familiar with the Ghostbusters lawsuit with Ray Parker Jr., it wasn't just that the song sounded like Huey Lewis in the News. It was that the production style copied Huey Lewis in the news. But of course, he couldn't sue every band in the 80s, just like Phil Collins couldn't sue every band in the 80s that used his drum sound, you know. I'm so frustrated right now that I can't even talk. I can barely read in this damn room. I need to move this lamp over closer to the desk. you think I would do that, but uh, no, I'm too fucking lazy. So, there's also a question of space on this desk. I have my work computer on here, so when I come in here to record the podcast, I put my personal laptop on the desk that is already cluttered. Then I have the microphone and the headphones, a drink. I have all this other crap on here, so I don't know what the fuck to do, honestly. Produced by the band, Sports opens with what will probably become one of their signature songs. <laughs> 
the heart of rock and roll. A loving ode to rock and roll all over the United States. It's followed by Heart and Soul, their first big single, which is a trademark Lewis song. And the tune that firmly and forever established them as the premier rock band in the country for the 1980s. He says the same thing about Genesis, by the way. If the lyrics aren't quite up to par with the other songs, most of them are more than serviceable, and the whole thing is a jaunty enterprise about what a mistake one-night stands are. Bad is Bad, solely written by Lewis, is the bluesiest song the band has recorded up to that point. And Mike Ciperon bass gives the shine to it. But it's really Huey's harmonica solos that give it an edge. I Want a New Drug, with its killer guitar riff, courtesy of Chris Hayes, is the album's centerpiece. Not only is it the greatest anti-drug song ever written, it's also a personal statement about how the band has grown up, shucked off their bad boy image, and learned to become more adult. Okay. I Want a New Drug is not about fucking drugs, people. I don't care what anyone says. It's about fucking love, man. You can't call it an anti-drug song, and Patrick Bateman is clearly not anti-drugs because he snorts so much fucking coke. The rest of the album whizzes by flawlessly. Side 2 opens with their most searing statement yet, Walking on a Thin Line. And no one, not even Bruce Springsteen, has written as devastatingly about the plight of the Vietnam vet in modern society. This song, though written by outsiders, shows a social awareness that was new to the band and proved to anyone who ever doubted it was the band, apart from its blues background, had a heart. The way that Brett Easton Ellis structures sentences in this book makes it very difficult to read out loud. It's a fun thing to read, but reading it out loud is, is difficult. So I kind of stumbled over that line. Walking on a thin line, and no one, not even Bruce Springsteen, has written as devastatingly about the, pride, the plight of the Vietnam vet in modern society. I wouldn't write a line like that. I, I wouldn't know how to, really. The song, though written by outsiders, shows a social awareness that was new to the band and proved to anyone who ever doubted it that the band, apart from its blues background, had a heart. See, the trouble with reading anything by Brad Easton Ellis is that it's all stream of consciousness and Patrick Bateman is trying to give some sort of intelligent organization to that stream of consciousness and when you read it aloud you can tell that a lot of what he's saying is just pure bullshit. So what's the deal with Patrick Bateman and Huey Lewis in the news? Well they were a huge band in the 80s as we've discussed already but to analyze Huey Lewis and the News lyrics as being any more in-depth than what you can find just by vaguely listening to it on the radio seems kind of stupid. In the movie, he goes on this whole tangent about how um, hip to be square is this sardonic look at contemporary American men and the culture of selling out la-di-da and then comparing him to Elvis Costello and saying that he's actually more dark and cynical than Elvis Costello. Yeah, these are things that only Patrick Bateman would say. Now, yeah, Hip to be Square is a commentary on 
80s culture, sure. But it's also a song that people get up and dance to. It's not really meant to be a big statement, which sort of contradicts what Patrick Bateman is trying to convey. It's as if he's trying to show everyone, hey, I'm deep. I get things that no one else gets about the same music that we're all listening to. And in the film, the detective that speaks to Patrick Bateman actually pulls out a Huey Lewis and the News album for... And that album, for and Sports, those were everywhere. Uh, when I was a kid and the 80s nostalgia period started in the early 2000s, you heard predominantly Huey Lewis news in the new songs on the radio. He had a lot of hits. It doesn't. It did not hurt that he was also part of the soundtrack for the Back to the Future movies. So that was another big movie franchise for me when I was a kid. I just recently rewatched them, and they're still great movies. But Huey Lewis was probably the only person to really rival Phil Collins and Michael Jackson in terms of popularity. I wouldn't even put Prince in the top three of 80s hit makers, but I love Prince. Huey Lewis would be the guy who would be on the Mount Rushmore for the 80s for me, and I'm not even a big fan of Huey Lewis in the news, but the fact that Patrick Bateman is taking the time to analyze them shows you just how silly he is and how he's trying to appear appear more intelligent than he really is. I will continue to discuss American Psycho in the next episode. I have several chapters marked. I imagine that we're going to have more than one more episode on American Psycho. And I got to tell you why it took me so many tries to start this episode and what has me frazzled talking about anything with anyone. I would not say that I'm upset right now. I'm actually more stable than I have been in a little, little while. But part of my stability is sort of remaining somewhere in between depressed and happy. So I'm fine with just being content, okay? And trying to find that happy medium is difficult because being quote-unquote happy, it's temporary, you know? It's not a permanent state. And often when I achieve that happiness, I have the opposite reaction. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about depression. So my mind is used to, to a certain amount of that. It's not used to any amount of happiness. So my life generally consists of just kind of being in the middle and trying to avoid being depressed. And I don't necessarily avoid being happy in terms of chemical reaction at least. But I would say that this year has blinded me to a lot of things because like anyone else, I've been locked inside and my normal life has been interrupted. I've been working from home since March, I'm going to continue working from home as long as I'm working for my company. I'm going to start going back to school 
in January. I took the semester off. So the normalcy of my life has been altered dramatically. So I mentioned on the last podcast that I had a friend who was reading American Psycho. And this friendship started in late September and it ran its course this past week. And I spent the, the weekend with my wife just trying to to spend time with her and start expressing how I feel for her again because I've been having a hard time with that lately. And that's just marriage, really. But I find that friendships for me don't last very long if they're intense. So... Friendships run the gamut from casual to acquaintance and then all the way back to intense, almost like a a relationship. So it's difficult to say goodbye to someone. And it's always for the best, really. And I had an experience with this person where I took off my rose-colored glasses and I looked at who they were and I didn't really like what I saw. Not saying that this person is a bad person, but they were not who I had made them out to be in my mind. And so I expressed this and I got hostility in return. Now. I'm not going to say anything bad about this person, but I don't have a whole lot of good things to say based on what happened last week. Just because if I express a feeling to you and you react a certain way, well, I don't need that in my life. So, I don't really get too close to people all that often, so... It it often seems like a mistake when it happens because of things like this. And I was raised an only child, and so a lot of times the person I was closest to was my mother, and then when I became a teenager, I isolated myself more, and I became used to being alone, but also kind of longing for someone. I was in a long-distance relationship, that ended up being an eight-year relationship that was very toxic. And that person is no longer in my life, but she's happier, and I'm happy for her. She's married, and I wish her nothing but the best, really. And I wish this person, who is no longer in my life, uh, the best, too. And we all have our ways of dealing with excising people from our lives or being kind of dumped. And that's all perfectly fine. If someone wants to think that I'm a bad person to make themselves feel better, that's fine. I'm fine with that. And my way of dealing with things is to block that person out of my life. 
because I want to make sure for my sake that there's no way that I can reach back out because there are times when we get desperate and we decide to enter back into situations that are not healthy for us. So, I have decided to prioritize my relationship with my wife and just kind of deal with life as it comes for now. I've got school starting back soon. I'm not happy about it, honestly, because balancing my, my job and school is going to be difficult, more difficult than it has been in the past because online school is different. And professors have different expectations because they think that if you don't have to come to campus, you have more time, which, no, that's not the case. Um, just because I'm at home doesn't mean I have the time to read as much as you're giving me. Oftentimes when I'm taking courses, I don't read everything that is assigned to me. Or I skim it, or I read a synopsis. Now, I've read a lot. Um, most of what I read during my last semester was Shakespeare plays. And I didn't enjoy it, but I did it. And I also watched the movies to kind of help me through it because, damn, those are difficult to get through. But that's the thing about a class, like a literature course, is you're going to seek other materials to help you through. And a lot of times the secondary material that is assigned to you doesn't really help you grasp anything. And you know what I hate? is when I go to a class, I spend most of my time reading a book, and we end up spending more time talking about secondary material that is irrelevant to me. I rarely read any of the secondary material in college when I was an undergrad. Why would I want to do it when I'm a grad student? I've made A's in all of my classes without doing that, so... I'm probably going to continue doing that, honestly. And it might come to bite me in the ass one day. I doubt it. But I think that people need to realize that everyone has a life. And things like school should not be top priority. But I'm going to get my master's because I want to better my life and I want to make more money. That's really all there is to it. I love literature. I love analysis. I love research. But um, unfortunately, the glory days of casual undergrad are over. So um, I thought that some of that would return when I went to grad school, but no, 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 no. Anyway, I'm done rambling for the evening. My voice is giving out on me, and quite frankly, I'm sure you're tired of listening if you are still listening, but this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading.